We have a thrilling episode of Workforce Disrupted today on the Ramp Podcast. Don Robertson is our guest. Don sits down with Manoj to talk through many topics, including the skills gap and the types of skills that will be critical for the future of work, whose responsibility it actually is to address that skills gap. Does the workforce today expect more out of employers compared to 10 years ago? And what does human capital in the future look like? Don has an impressive background. He's an executive vice president and chief human resources officer at Northwestern Mutual. And he's been a catalyst of change within the NM brand, bringing a strategic mindset and a unique flair for identifying and developing talent at his current row as CHRO. Don understands how to meet the needs of a diverse workforce while employing strategic thinking to deliver real results at NM. We're thrilled to have him today on Workforce Disrupted. Let's jump into the show. You're listening to The Ramped Podcast, a podcast connecting industry heavyweights with the next generation of talented professionals. We're on a mission to build transparency into the practical realities of your early career by exploring how the world's best did it themselves. Our guidance will help you discover and launch a successful career in sales, technology, finance, and many other industries. Thank you, Don, so much for joining us today for Ram's Workforce Disrupted Podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Don, you and I caught up a little bit before I hit the record uh-huh. button here. Uh, but for folks that don't know who you are, um, could you touch upon your background a little bit? Sure. And if you're open to it, focus on what it means to be an HR leader today compared to you know, what your role was 20 years ago. Sure. Well, thanks, Manoj. And uh, my role 20 years ago wasn't in HR, so uh, I'll certainly be able to do that. As we were saying before we we started uh, the session, uh, you know, I I I my I started out as an accountant. I uh, got an accounting and marketing degree. Played baseball in college. Did a number of things that uh, were related at that time. But and I and I spent about the first I guess about 15, 17 years of my career in in finance kind of roles, whether it be a CPA, uh, a controller a CFO and a number of different uh, financial analysts. And so I got a a pretty strong background amongst a variety of companies, industries, geographies in the financial area. And then I kind of started to shift into general management roles, did a few startups. And and as you touched upon Stanford Research Institute, their consulting firm, where I was a COO and kind of general management. And and then I, I spent uh, the last 17, 18 year, 20 years of my career in, in HR roles and at, at Hewlett Packard and a number of other companies. How I got into HR is a longer story, but what I will say is I, I spent an, a number of years in sales related at the back end of my finance roles. And one of the w- first ways I kind of got into HR was doing sales development, sales uh, learning for the, the sales organization of HP. And that ultimately led to me kind of shifting over into HR and, and, and predominantly in HR business partner kind of roles, because I had a strong business background, I could relate well to business leaders and what they were trying to do and really bridge that gap between what HR was trying to do at a corporate level to what ultimately the, the business and field needed. I think what's shifted in the last five to 10 years is HR is really today in many respects, I think if, if they're doing it correctly, kind of the, what I would call the change agents or the catalysts or the architects for a lot of the transformation 
that companies need to do around their talent from an experiential standpoint, from a development standpoint, from an opportunity standpoint, and uh, in many respects, from a change, just from a change management standpoint. And um, and so one of the advantages I had was having so much understanding of business that allowed me to connect very rapidly with business leaders. But I do think as an HR professional today, one of the things you have to have is the ability to be agile and to pivot and to really understand and, and really really help the business as a catalyst or an architect. And that's one of the big things that I spend a lot of, frankly, want a lot of my time on is really helping the business really transform and move forward. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned the word change because there's two schools of thought. One of it is to be a little bit averse to change and think of it as, oh, this is going to pop friction. So how do I deal with it? Another school of thought, which it sounds like you've subscribed to, is embracing change as something that's necessary and inevitable and running with it. What changes are you seeing in the past five years from a, from a talent perspective and from an expectations perspective in the workforce? Yeah. And first of all, to address your point, why I, why I embrace change. Listen, nobody wakes up in the morning and just says, hey, I want to change everything, right? I mean, I think you know what you have to focus on, Manoj, is what's the outcome you're trying to get. I mean, I, I find when people disagree about their willingness to change, it's best to focus on, well, what's the outcome? What's it going to take to get you to that outcome? And oftentimes, it's going to require you to to operate or think differently and to achieve that. And I think in terms of what on my scene that's requiring it, it's moving from an what I would describe as an analog world to a digital world. I mean, I think many of the skills and capabilities that existed up until a short time ago were predominantly driven in what I would say in a, a kind of a batch concept, if you will, to think about it from the standpoint of, of, of ready now. And many of the concepts that from a talent standpoint for the future is about more of a ready now or an, or an immediate, you know, and, and we're seeing that. I mean, it wasn't that long ago when people were developing new web web applications that they, all, that they weren't really even thinking about the mobile side of that. And now you wouldn't think of developing an application that doesn't have a, a, a mobile element to it. That's probably even more pronounced than what you're doing on the web um, because most people, and in fact, if you think globally, most people interact from a digital standpoint via their smartphone, not not necessarily via a computer. So I think that's a lot of the mindset is has got to revolve around from a talent standpoint is how do you, what do you do to create a better digital experience? Because I don't really care whatever you do. Most companies, regardless of whether they're technology companies, in our case, you know, we're a financial services company, but we think of ourselves more as a technology company because most of what people interact with us is digitally. And yes, we, we can have the best product, but if the experience isn't a powerful experience, it doesn't have the impact. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's any disagreement that digitization, to some extent automation, is just changing the, the nature of work. And yet there's a, a bit of a concern from a, from a human capital perspective. What does it mean if everything gets digitized? You and I have both held roles in, in accounting. We've sold, uh, and I, I share your passion for that as well, to some extent. But where do you see human capital coming into play in an increasingly digital world. How does that look like 10 years from now? Well, I mean, it's hard for me to predict exactly what it's going to look like, but I certainly think from a from a people standpoint, the types of skills that are going to be most highly valued are really going to fall, I, I think, almost in two camps. People that have the technological element to build it and people that have the business element to understand what you build. So I think the most powerful skills that are going to be valuable in 10 to 15 years from now are people that have both. I mean, someone that has an understanding of what do you do to create the most powerful digital experience 
but also has enough technical capability to understand you know, what that needs to look like and, and from a business process standpoint. Because one of the biggest changes, Manoj, quite candidly, to get from here to there is most companies already exist and they have to change their business processes to be more designed to deliver that. I'll take us, for example. We've been around 160 plus years. We haven't, our products at their core really haven't changed much in the last 160 years. I mean, we, our predominant product is permanent life insurance, which has been, you know, which at its core doesn't really change a lot. But the way that we're introducing that, the way that we're going to be, our, our clients are going to experience it is going to change just from the underwriting process, the automation process. You know, it used to be that if you wanted to get insurance, you had to get a doctor's appointment, you had to get an exam, you had to get a number of things that were what I would call pretty time-consuming and not necessarily user-friendly. And all of a sudden, now we live in a world where data is out there and the science of that, and, and, and you have a much more rapid ability to gather information about the predictability of how somebody's going to live their life. And so your entire business process for how you underwrite has to change because you don't want to be taking a month for somebody to get to get approved. They want to get approved in 15 minutes or, you know, or 30 minutes. And so the way you have to actually think about that, you have to have enough knowledge of the core of what your business is, but then have enough ability to understand how do you automate that? How do you speed that up so that you ultimately can create that positive experience? And so those kinds of skills, I think, are going to be much, much more valuable than they are today. And does it concern you a little bit or are you not concerned about a skills gap in general. There's been quite a bit of focus and talk and debate about the types of skills people need. Um, it's changing very quickly. Um, and yet there's, there's a bit of doubt about whether the supply side of the ecosystem, which is the workforce, is able to get those skills necessary in order to be a productive participant in the future economy. Does that concern you at all, that there is a skills gap today or there will be one in the foreseeable future? Well, without a doubt. I think when you when a company, first of all, a company has to understand strategically where it wants to go. Like we have, for example, a multi-year strategy. We know where we want to go over the next five to 10 years. And, and then you have to think about, all right, well, what, does that, what does that require from a product standpoint? What are your product roadmaps? What's your, what are your technological roadmaps? What can you afford financially? And out of that, comes a number of talent implications of what is it going to take to make that happen. And then as you think about that, then you compare that to what you have from a current skill set. You have two choices. You either build it or you acquire it. And the longer you can create that window, the more that you have tools and levers available to you, whether it's develop your own people, whether it's training, whether it's go work out a, a, a relationship with a university, whether it's hiring or doing an aqua hire, et cetera. And then you add the elements of diversity and other pieces of what you're trying to accomplish. Ultimately, you have to create longer range labor plans that match up to your financial plans. You can do all that really well. And at the end of the day, you're still going to be subject to what's the supply out there. And I think many of us would say that the most critical skills that we're looking for today, technologically, as well as business-wise, are, are, are not as readily available. And of course, with this pandemic, it's only exacerbated it. So um, I do think it's a, it's a big challenge. I can tell you what we're trying to do is develop is, is develop more pipelines. You know, one of the most recent things we did, for example, is because uh, we're in Milwaukee, is there wasn't enough pipeline of kind of early career people, especially early career diverse candidates. And so we're going and now working with a company called All in Milwaukee, and we're sponsoring a number of Milwaukee public school uh, kids to go to college, guaranteeing them jobs, you know, et cetera, and paying for that so that we can create a continue to increase that pipeline 
as well as a number of other things we're doing in developing our own talent. Like some of the, you know, some of the technology we use in our in our mainframe area is quite old and it's hard to find people that have that skills. So we're actually, um, you know, doing our own training courses and developing our own people. So you have to use almost every tool and every arrow in your quiver to address this problem. And it's, I, I, I agree with you. I, I do think it's going to get more challenging as we go on. Who do you think though, at the end of the day, is in the best position to address the skills gap? Or is that an unfair question? Uh, is that a shared responsibility? Oh, I think it has to be a shared responsibility. You know, I mean, companies obviously have to do a better job of identifying their future needs. I mean, one of the disciplines that we're really building here is is labor planning and long-range workforce planning. I think very few companies do that well. And in fact, most of the time, they're reacting. And so therefore, you're, you're really your only avenue is to hire externally. And, and of course, that's a challenge because not everybody's going to come to work for you and everybody's looking for the same skills. And it doesn't make your employees feel very good that every time there's new things, they're not getting an opportunity. But I think the employee has to actually, the individual employee has a responsibility to consistently make themselves relevant by de- developing new skills, constantly learning, constantly uh, understanding what's going on. I think the education, we know you have to partner with the educators, you have to partner with the universities. You have to partner with the local uh, politicians, et cetera, and school systems. So I think it's a, it's going to take a combination, uh, you know. And I, and I think you know we're not. I'm not relying on third parties to solve our problem for us, uh, but I am. We're le- certainly leveraging every avenue we possibly can. But we tell our employees every day: you have to own your own career. You know, you have to be responsible. We tell managers every day that you have to do a better job of developing your people. Because I'll tell you one thing: Minos, that ha- that has to. We have to as a society we have to become better at is we got to recognize there's two sides to the coin. You know, companies hire people because they want to get things done. Employees join a company because they want to grow their career. The more that we can marry those two things together, that while you're getting things done for the company, you're personally growing from that experience and developing new skills, then ultimately you start to have both sides win. And uh, we know the companies that do that well because everybody wants to go work for them. Mm-hmm. But we, you know, we have to do that consistently across the enterprise and we have to, you know, you know, we have to teach every one of our, our employees and our managers that that's their responsibility to make that happen. Mm-hmm. I, I learned that early in my career. You know, I, I talked about my background. I got a chance to work at GE when Jack Welch was there. And one of the things that he really, um, I think, took a lot of focus on as a leader was that he was he was almost his view was you were performance as a leader was only going to be in his eyes superstar if you had many leaders that you created behind you. So, you know, in fact, if you if you had a great performance in the business unit you were in, that was fine. But what he also looked at was who around the company did you develop? And so we need to ultimately teach leaders that their responsibility isn't just to perform what they're doing, but to develop the future leaders. Um, and, and I think that was something that, you know, this was, you know, 30 years ago, but it's it's more relevant today than ever before. No, that's great perspective. Uh, and it makes a lot of sense as a potential participant uh, into the workforce or a current or future employee. I think today that's in top of people's minds are, you know, how do I future-proof my relevance, uh, not just to the organization that I'm a part of, but uh, as I think about my own career progression and part of the relevance dynamic is, is picking up these, these skills. And whether it's company sponsor, sponsored, whether it's something that I, as an employee, would do out of my own volition, I do think that that, that, that makes a lot of sense and it's a shared responsibility. And then the other interesting thought from a workforce perspective is, well, there's skills that are changing and I need to go pick up these new skills. 
But the nature of work is also changing. Right? 20 mm -hmm. years ago, employment meant one conventional thing. You would participate and you'd be part of a large organization. And mm -hmm. whether you're you know, a, commission, a salaried employee or you work in a commission structure, uh, you're tethered to that employee and that, that employer and that employer alone. But what we've seen in the past couple of years is it's been democratized a, a bit. As, as, as a workforce participant, there's many different ways that I can think about my career and there's many different ways that I can think about making money. You know, use Upwork and be a gig worker. You could work with DoorDash mm -hmm. or Uber on the site. You could be a content creator on TikTok and share your knowledge, right? What it means to be a teacher today, very different than what it means to be a teacher 10 years ago. Anybody with yep. a webcam and some subject matter expertise can actually monetize their skills very easily today. How do you mm -hmm. think about that as the world is changing quickly from organized labor, which is employer driven to a decentralized gig worker type structure. Yeah. I mean, you brought up some great points. And in fact, we're dealing with these very same issues. I, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, we're a company that most of our employees up until five, 10 years ago, had spent pretty much their entire career with us and generally would spend it in, in probably one or two particular areas. And as you think about the skills of the future, we're going to need. You know, one, you know, it doesn't just it doesn't just impact you from a talent standpoint. It impacts you from a culture standpoint. One of the things that we've been, you know, really having an appreciation for, and really I've been pushing the company on, it's all about skills. So we may need people that have specific skills. But don't have an, but don't necessarily want to work here their own career, their whole career. They may just, you know, and we, so we may need somebody that has a specific skill in web development or, or software development or software engineer that, you know, that you wants to come in and, and really wants to work on cool stuff because we have some cool stuff we're working on. But in two or three years when they've worked on that cool stuff, maybe they want to go somewhere else. So you can't design your entire ecosystem to only be able to address people that want to spend 25 years at your company. You have to have the ability to be attractive to those people that want want to spend 20 to 25 years, but also be flexible enough that you can attract the people that you may need that you may only have for two or three or four years because you need that skill. And I can tell you the one thing, I, I don't know that I would necessarily see the world moving to be as heavy gig worker or everything else, but I do think skills is going to become the currency of the future uh, more so than ever less so uh, much less uh, or more so than titles or roles or it's it's what are the skills that you actually have and and who needs them and how they're going to use them and I think we're going to start to see more of those kind of um, those kind of roles being available where you need somebody to come in they they do something for you for a you know they write some code they do something and and employers I think like us have to be more flexible to allow for that you know because most of us build our cultures based on having an environment that is suitable for one type of person. And, and we need to be more flexible because it's not going to be the case. And, you know, when you go back to the 60s and 70s, right? I mean, people would, when I was growing up, it was like, you took one job, you spent your whole career there, you got your gold watch, you retired. And, and even in the 80s and 90s, I remember when uh, I made a couple job changes and my grandfather who raised me, my Italian grandfather said, you know, hey, kid, you know, you've taken like three jobs now. Nobody's going to trust you anymore. You know, whereas now if you're not taking, you know, if you take three jobs in 10 years, people are going to think nothing of it. So I, I do think we've got to be more flexible and open. And I think that's the biggest change, Manoj, that I, I'm seeing is it's about skills. You know, and it's about you need to be able to marry that. That doesn't mean you don't want a culture that can have both, but you have to have a culture that allows for both. Yeah, you know, I'm smiling because 
I think you're the minority of people that, that embraces this idea that it's okay for folks to spend a couple of years, two, three, four, and move on and find other places uh, where they want to demonstrate their skills. Uh, I can tell you that I, I, I do read a number of job posts and job descriptions that says, oh, we don't want job hoppers, right? And, and there's been this whole push that how people bounce around, you can't stick at a company for two years, you don't have sticking power. To some extent, maybe some of that is true, but the way I look at it, and I, you know, again, share your sentiment on it, is you provide an environment that allows for both, and you get two good years out of a person, you get two good years out of a person. So that's that's interesting. What else are you are you are you seeing in terms of workforce expectations? Right. So one of the things we talked about is someone comes in and they say, "I'm going to give a couple of good years at NM, and then I'll either stay around or or move away." And as a organization, it sounds like. You know, you're okay with either outcomes. What other expectations are you seeing today uh, from people that want to participate in the workforce? Yeah, don't get me wrong. I'd love to have people stay longer than two years, but I think you just have to, you have to be willing to, you know, for these acute skills that you absolutely have to have. There are skills, you know, I wouldn't want actuaries to come in here and leave every every two years. I mean, that's different than having somebody who has a specific technological software skill that I I, I know I need. One of yeah. our obligations is to keep keep coming up with cool things for them to work on. But, but, um, but you have to be, your environment has to allow for both. Um, another thing that I'm seeing that's really a trend is obviously we're in this pandemic. You know, we were a company that the expectation was 90% of the people would come into the office. And in fact, relationships were built on that. I mean, this is a company that's existed in the Milwaukee area since the 1880s. So, I mean, um, you know, it, it's, it's not a place where you've had people scattered all over the world or scattered all over the country. And, you know, now we're, we're in a situation where, you know, we all of a sudden, and our culture is built on that. And, and that with good reason, and by the way, we've had an unbelievable performance through this pandemic and it's because of the relationships. And I think um, the collaboration that needs to exist, but I think what's, what the company is, is, has learned from this is you can build relationships without necessarily always being together. And you need to be able to be allow for flexibility where it makes sense, depending on what role, you know, so we're much more willing to be uh, open-minded to, you know, certain types of roles and certain types of skills to be more flexible than we were before, you know, and that's something that I think has been, uh, and I think many companies are going through that now. The difference between us and a lot of companies is we're trying not to go out with mandates. Oh, we're, we're going to allow this or no, we're not going to allow that because I don't think any of us know exactly how this is all going to play out. And we've kind of tried to refrain from all that other than safety. Safety has been our one top priority that we've been focused on, keep our people safe, make good decisions around that. And then let's see where the market goes. Because for example, you go and say, everybody's got to be in the office and everybody else is allowing people to be wherever they want. That's not very smart and vice versa. So that's a big trend that we're seeing is it's it's becoming much more of a buyer's, much more of a buyer's market, if you will, to use that term. And you are, and, and as an, a company, we have to do a much better job, a much more powerful job to be attractive. And so we're spending a lot more energy and effort on really making sure that our brand is uh, from an employee standpoint is consistent with what we think we believe in, but also attractive. And I think, you know, as, as, as a lot of your your listeners and uh, who are especially earlier in their career, you know, if you think about what they want, they want to they want to learn new stuff. They want to work for people that are going to teach and care about them. They want to make an impact on in, in the world. Uh, that's what I've got 20 and 18 year olds. And I know that they want to they want to have more influence than maybe you and I did when we were early in our careers. And so you have to think about how do you design your environment 
So you can create a consistent opportunity for them to have those kind of experiences. You and I didn't get to where we are because we got trained. We got to where we are because we've gone, we've learned and, and experienced things that has allowed us to then draw from those when we in, in the context we're operating in. And so what we're trying to do is create more of those kind of experiences for people early in their careers. So that they get exposed to lots of different things. They get the mentorship, they get the opportunity. And, and it's not just about coming here and doing that role. And that's all, you know, it's, it's more about how do we create an, an environment for them that allows them to thrive and to experience new things. You think generationally, folks are asking more questions, uh, specifically smarter questions uh, of their employers. I remember when I started, I was just grateful to have a job. And listen, this is not a, this is not a take on hustle culture versus, you know, you're someone that is taking advantage of what's been given to you because all the rhetoric aside, are you seeing employees today that are new participants in the workforce expect and demand more of employers, rightfully so, than people did 10 years ago? Well, the short answer is I think yes, um, predominantly because I think it is a buyer's market and they and they can generally afford to, but, it, but it's also very heavily dependent on which area you're in, right? If you've got a if you've got a skill set that allows you to be more of a, you know, a high price free agent, if you will, than someone, you know, that's in a more homogeneous type role or a more commoditized type role. There's nothing wrong with commoditized type roles. Don't get me wrong. We need those. You know, we need lots of those kind of people. But I think it, it depends on what area you're in. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, just like 20 years ago, you still want people that are resilient. You still want people that are intelligent. You still want people that are having a great attitude. You still want people that can ultimately get stuff done and, and then have the ability to pivot and be agile. But the difference is, I think, you know, you're more willing to tolerate less of those things in areas where you need high skill sets of certain things. I think the ability to be what I would call a, a kind of a a function or technical or functional expert and not necessarily, you know, those things are, those things give you a lot more ability to be, to be uh, asking for things than others. But yeah, I don't think there's any question. This generation is probably um, they're bolder. They're more willing, you know, the, to, to stick their head out of the sand and ask those hard questions. They're not afraid to walk up to executives. Like I, I'll tell you a story, Minos, it's pretty funny. I was at a a Humane Society gala the other night and, and uh, I was having dinner and then I, we went upstairs to the bar and there was an early career ex- uh, person who walked up to me and just introduced himself to me and asked if, you know, they could do a coffee or something. And I thought that was great, right? I mean, I just like, you know, I was really... I was really excited that they weren't intimidated to walk up and they just like, you know, my God, they introduce themselves, introduce their wife and hey, can I, we get together sometime? I would have never done that early in my career. And I would, you know, I would have been terrified. But so, I mean, it's a great thing that this person did that. Um, at the same time, you know, it's just very different than what I've experienced. And uh, I mean, I was pleased that obviously I was relatable enough in there. I'd like to think I was relatable enough. That's why they did it. But uh, there's also just a lot of courage, I think, that this generation has. I think the challenge for us as senior leaders in companies is to help them understand, you know, how to, how to, how to build the life experiences to go along with it. You know, I mean, I remember when my oldest was 16 and had it all figured out. And now, of course, he's at his third year in college and he was calling me. He said, hey, dad, I, I don't think I have it all figured out. And of course, I'm like, I know that. But uh, that's why you go through life is to get those experiences. So the key is how do you give that kind of mentorship and development for people? But but it's not because they're not smart. They might be smarter than us. They just don't have the experience yet. And, yeah. I, and I'll, I'll say this, Manoj, I, I think what allows you to thrive and master ultimately in the workforce is through the ability to have experiences that allow you just to filter 
I'll, I'll give you an example. You know how to drive a car. You know how to you you know how to get to where to and from the grocery store that you're that you're at uh, that you shop at all the time. But if I took and dropped you in the middle of Australian outback and told you to go X Y Z to a place, you know how to you didn't stop you didn't forget how to drive a car. You still know how to read a map, but you're not going to be as efficient as doing it because first of all you're driving on the other side of the road. Second of all, you don't know where you're going. Now after a month or two, you're going to start to become more efficient. But it's it's not that they don't know intu- intuitively what to do. It's but until you do it enough times and repeat it and and deal with similar experiences, you're not going to be as efficient in how and how you process the information. So you can't make as intelligent of decisions. And that's the thing that we as employers have to create an environment that allows our employees to have those experiences that allow them to be much more effective and efficient in how they do their jobs and, and grow. And that's that's the thing that I strive every day to try to create that world. And how are you relaying that message? Is the forum and the method and the way in which you deliver this message to the workforce of today, is that different than oh, yeah. five years ago? Yeah. What's working for, for you folks? Well, we all know what it's like, right? In the old days, you know, when you'd, uh, you know, my first, when I first started out, you'd have large town halls and you'd have large events or long emails that way they'd explain to you what they're doing. I, you know, I, I, like to, I use this term all the time. I don't think you can town hall your way to change. Um, I think, you know, what we're using a lot more is a lot more focus groups and small groups and one-on-ones. I've been here now three and a half years. I've probably had one-on-ones with 3,000 of our 8,000 employees. I mean, you know, I mean, I just spend a lot more time talking in more intimate small groups because I think, you know, you can't just direct at people anymore. You have to interact and connect. And and it's very difficult to connect in thousand person audiences. We still do those. Don't get me wrong. We still have large meetings, but we rely a lot more on the, on the more interpersonal, the smaller group environments. And I know that's hard for companies to do. It takes a lot of time and a lot of energy, but I think that's one of the ways that I think we're operating very differently. You know, another example is you have to win over the hearts and minds of the people managers. Every every people manager ultimately is managing your people. If you want to convey messaging, you have to make sure they understand and, and not just understand the words, but the, the intent. And so we spend a lot more time with that group than we than we historically have. So that's kind of the, I spend a ton of time. I'll, I'll do like 50 person meetings. I'll do 20 people meetings. You know, I I, uh, I I just spend a lot my, and my leaders and my partners and my colleagues uh, on the SLT, they do the same thing. We just spend a lot more time talking to people. That's incredible, man. You spoke with 3,000 people one-on-one. I for sure would have loved that kind of opportunity when, when I was younger. Um, I was terrified of approaching and having conversations with very senior folks. I mean, I was in my bubble and it took me a while in my own head to earn my worth for the lack of a better word. Right? And that's the perspective that I had was... I needed to get to a certain point in order to, you know, even ask five or 10 minutes of someone's time. And until then, I just considered, hey, I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, but there's something to be said about, you know, you being able to spend time like that. And I'm sure, you know, folks at NNM are, uh, are fairly thrilled about that opportunity. That's incredible. And I wish more people did that, is spend that time, because it's incredibly, you know, intensive. It's, it's, it's manual work. It's hours in a day. Uh, yeah. Yet it sounds like, it's moving the needle for for you for you and your team. I think it is. You know, I mean, I, I think uh, you know to be able to have authentic, you know, uh, kind of relatable conversations with people up and down the chain. It, it gives an it gives an ability for these folks to first of all to have an outlet to convey their messages. Um, and and you know, one of the you know early on when I was doing it, 
there was no question that people initially were intimidated, but it's amazing how word travels. And next thing I know, Hey, so-and-so said they had a conversation with you. Can I get 15 minutes with you? And, you know, and, or you, you know, we've built this wonderful um, kind of what I would call community, you know, where our offices are and we have an internal kind of what I would almost like think of it as a shopping mall and you can walk down to get coffee and people see you and you you know, you talk to them. I, so I, I think that it, 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 the environment is conducive for it. It's always been a very people-oriented company, a very relationship-oriented company. So it was just a natural extension. The thing that I'm most excited about, though, is my my 10 colleagues on the SLT, they're also doing it. So you know what happens is you touch now two, three, four thousand people a year, and uh, it's taken our engagement scores, you know, to to almost ninety percentile. It's taken our attrition is is very low, single low single digits, and so um, it's it's you know that doesn't mean there are don't get me wrong, there are plenty of things we could still work on and do better, and we don't always get it right, but most of the time we actually know how our people think. And that's what really is really helpful. And it gives them a chance to kind of see how we think. You know, something you read in an email like, hey, a company, what we're going to do this is a lot different than having a conversation with somebody and explaining why you're doing it. Yeah, I would step in the right direction, Don. I mean, for those that are that are listening, it's okay if you're early in your career to ask for time and all these conversations uh, and B, if you're you know an HR leader or a senior executive, it, it sounds like it's a worthwhile investment to try and spend as much time as feasible with uh, in person or one on one with folks uh, with folks at the company. That's that's actually very cool. Uh, I'm impressed with uh, with with the with the level of uh, with the level of attention uh, that you uh, able to share with uh, with with your own workforce. Uh, Don, let me ask you one one last question. You've been incredibly generous with sure. your time. Uh, I want to I get your thoughts on this and, uh, and we'll call it a wrap. What are you most excited about uh, for, for the future as it pertains to talent and workforce? You know, the thing that I get most excited about is probably the, you know, when, when I started my career 36 years ago, a lot of talent got recognized for where they went to school, what are they, who they knew. And, and you know, and what I'm most excited about is today, I'm a big believer in this, that you know that it, it doesn't matter. You talked about it when you said anybody can publish, anybody can do TikTok. What I'm what I'm excited about for the future is is that it doesn't matter. You know what your background is, where you went to school, what color you are. You know what what anything else in your life. It's what skill and talent that you have, and that all people have an opportunity to succeed and, perf- and perform. And it's much more of a level playing field, you know, you, than it ever was. I mean, you remember there was you know, not that long ago, if you were a writer and you wanted to get published, you had to go through one of the big firms. Now you can just publish yourself that, you know, there's so many talented people out there that are getting opportunities to do things because of the ability to go straight to the market. And and a lot of the what I would call unnecessary bureaucracy or or subjective human element is kind of out of the equation, and uh, I still think we got a ways to go in terms of how we hire people. But but I I think it's amazing how much more people are now being valued on the skills that they have and the entrepreneurial uh, spirit that they have than ever before. And I I just see that continuing. And and for me, someone who didn't go to a you know, a five-star school and didn't necessarily get the five-star degree, you know, who spent the first 10 or 15 years maybe trying to overcome some of that, you know, and I try to give it back now by, you know, trying to uncover those those unicorns. I try to be a little bit of a talent whisperer to get to know the talent that's out there that maybe somebody else doesn't know, you know, that's, that's exciting, you know, and I think that's only going to continue. And uh, I would just encourage people out there to, you know, regardless of your backgrounds and your, and anything else to, to really have a, have a, 
have a thought in mind on what they want to accomplish and don't let anybody hold you back. And that's what's exciting for me. Yeah, I share your, uh, uh, your optimism, John, for it. I mean, as, as someone that went to a small state school 40 miles west of Boston, uh, I, for one, had first-hand experience of, of how skills can just level the playing field. Um, if you're reasonably good at something, I think employers today, uh, including folks like NM, are open to embracing um, skills yep. fit highly. As years progress, I hope more and more employers will take a similar approach and uh it probably is best uh, is best for everyone. So, uh, thank you, Don, for uh, for your talk sure. today. It's been such a treat speaking to you, and um, I'm sure folks that have um, listened to this podcast will will make good decisions, uh, both from a you know HR perspective, but also more importantly, as, as a new entrant to the workforce, it gives us a bit of a glimpse as to what uh, employers are looking for in the marketplace today. Uh, really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you for listening to The Ramped Podcast. To access our show notes, The Ramped platform, or to become a corporate partner, visit www.rampedcareers.com or email us at sales at rampedcareers.com. This podcast is brought to you by Ramped. Ramped is on a mission to democratize job access through learning and career discovery. Until next time.